You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. such a pure joy uh, to be here. Thank you, Benita, for inviting me. And uh, I'm so excited about all that you guys are doing here. Um, I kind of follow from a distance online and could not be more excited uh, to share with you this morning to be part of it. And by the way, 10 years, that's awesome in like church world. So give yourselves like a big round of applause for that. You've been in a series where you've been kind of looking right at the things that form us, the ideas that form us, and using as kind of an outline for that, a Wesley's kind of approach, right? The, the four things, uh, tradition and experience and, uh, and scripture, which is what we're going to talk about today, and, and reason. And so we're going to start in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 46, verse 9. When the people of the land... The, the whole community, comes before the Lord at the appointed festivals, comes uh, for worship, like we are this morning. Whoever enters by the north gate to worship is to go out the south gate. And whoever enters by the south gate is to go out the north gate. You following that so far? No one is to return through the gate By which they entered. But each is to go out a different gate. Thus saith the word of the Lord. And I think very, thanks, I like that, yeah. And I think probably self explanatory, right? For those of you online, right? You get it? You're with us? I love that little clip because I think it's actually a really practical teaching about the nature of our gathering. Right, the basic idea is this, that the way you come, when you come to worship together as a community, you should leave differently. Something should happen in the midst of that experience that changes you. Never leave the same way you came. Amen? So that's my challenge to you this morning. Don't leave here the same way that you came. I trust that God has something for all of us this morning, that as we meet together, my prayer is, and my prayer has been for us, that we would be transformed by an encounter with the living God. 30 years ago this summer, I had a life-transforming encounter with Jesus. And to this day, it's the single most influential and significant thing that has ever happened to me. Well, we just talked about what, what our favorite vacation spots are. Mine is definitely Martha's Vineyard. I just got back from a two-week family vacation there. I've been lucky enough that my family, we pretty much go every year. and I'm single, but I'm in the middle of seven brothers and sisters, uh, all of which other, everyone else is married. So, and have, so I have lots of nieces and nephews, eight of them. 
So we were 22 people all together, three generations, two houses, two weeks. Uh, my tent making, by the way, when, when I'm not uh, pastoring, has uh, been as a chef. And uh, my brothers all cook as well. So we eat well when we're there. <laughs> and it's easily my favorite vacation spot, but not insignificantly because of some of my memories. It was 30 years ago. I was 17. I was got back from a, a party for uh, the staff. I was working at a commercial fish market on the docks in Menemsha, and there was a late night party. I got back, and I had been kind of on a spiritual search in high school for a lot of reasons, and I was reading this book that a, a pastor friend had given me called The Fight by John White, and I was reading the chapter in it about prayer, and it was like 2 in the morning, and I remember profoundly reading that chapter on prayer and, and, and having the realization that for the first time in my life I'd prayed, and more importantly, I knew it had been heard. And, and I knew, at 17 years old, I, I knew that it had been heard by Jesus. And, and I have to tell you something, that is not the most logical conclusion for a gay Jewish liberal kid from Fairfield, Connecticut. But I had no doubts in that moment. I remember I left the house, I, I hiked out to the nearest ocean beach, it was about three and a half miles away. Lucy Vincent Beach, for some of you who've been there. And as the sun came up, I sat there on Lucy Vincent Beach in Chilmark, Massachusetts. And I read the entire Gospel of John. And I've never turned back. I sat on the beach and, and read through it. And it, the Gospel, if you're familiar with it, it starts this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the, the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, the Word, right, this living Word, the word that was God, became flesh. And as Eugene Peterson says, moved into our neighborhood, uh, made his dwelling with us. That's Jesus. For we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from our heavenly parent, full of grace and truth. And that's how the gospel of John starts, and, and then it ends this way. John chapter 21, verse 25. Now Jesus did many other things as well. I love the way John just ends that way, right? It's cool. He writes this whole book with all this detail. And, and, and 2,000 years later, we kind of assume that it was like an historian dictation. It was like all this kind of every possible detail. And here's John writing him in his own pen. He says, look, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. In other words, my account, John is saying, it, it, it's not complete, it's still being written. There's an openness to the end of the story, to the book. And what I discovered at 17, and I'm continuing to discover again and again in my life, is that what lies between that beginning, the word that became flesh, and the ending, so many more stories that could be told, 
is literally the most amazing story I've ever heard. It's, it's a story of, of brokenness and redemption, of, of trauma and of healing, of loss, of grief, joy, sacrificial love, persecution. Right? It, it's a courtroom drama, thriller, and romantic comedy all tied into one. And I have to tell you, over the last 30 years, right, a lot of life happens, doesn't it? I mean, I have to be honest with you, as I reflected this, this summer while I was out there, it's remarkable to me that a decision that we can make at age 17 can so impact the rest of our lives. And over that time, there's been much, what I would call deconstruction, reconstruction, or as Richard Rohr calls it, kind of order, discovery of disorder, and then reorder. During that time, I, I, I came out. I got essentially uh, fired from a church because of that, a church I founded. I had to wrestle with my own sense of uh, self-loathing that comes with all that complex emotion, right, of being hidden and in the closet and living a lie and, and, and loss of my community, like all of that stuff. And I had to figure out how this all fit with my relationship with God. I've experienced incredible amounts of healing, of hope, of redemption. And so much of my journey has been wrestling with this book. Not just what it says, but does it matter? Yes? Anyone been there? I mean, is it relevant to me? In our day? And if so, how? I trust that you've maybe wondered that question as well. Right? Does the Bible really matter anymore? Is it relevant? Is it authoritative? What exactly is it? And in a world where too often this book is weaponized and hijacked, and used to beat people up, it's very easy for some of us to simply to want to dismiss it. Some of us have honestly been traumatized by it. Now, let me back up. Been traumatized by people who've weaponized it and used it. And so it's easy, I think, sometimes just to set it aside. To think of it as just 2,000 years old. Kind of an interesting footnote to history. But certainly not something that speaks into my life. If you came through the north door, be sure to leave through the south door. If you came through the south one, you're going to leave through the north because you don't want to leave the same way you came, yes? What is the Bible? Well, first of all, it's not a book right? It's a library, right? In our Protestant tradition, it's actually over 66 books, multiple authors, multiple languages, mostly ancient Greek and Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, multiple genres, right? Some of it is history. Some of it is story. Some of it is uh, metaphor. Some of it is, much of it is beautiful Hebrew poetry, 
I don't know about you, my, my brother teaches and studies uh, poetry at the university level, and uh, I don't understand English poetry. Maybe it's just me. Like, I honestly, like, I'm like, Jonathan, it, it sounds good. I have no idea what it means. Now imagine that with a foreign language that's a dead language from 2,000 years ago. But when we discover there's beauty. And one of the, I think, real challenges and problems is that we've been told things that are simply untrue about this book. So part of my journey, how I came into relationship with Jesus and that process uh, was through the ministry of Young Life. Do you have any, like, Young Life alum around here? It's cool. <laughs> Very nice. I like that. That excites me. We can have a conversation. Like, I, have, you know, it's, it's, I have some different feelings about Young Life these days than I might have as a kid, but it changed my life. And I was on staff with Young Life for five years as an area director and a closeted area director, but neither here nor there. And... As, <laughs> and, and, and youth ministry, and as a youth pastor, I used to tell kids lies. Now, not on purpose. I don't think I, I realized, I don't think I was doing it on purpose. Or, or maybe what we should say is age-appropriate metaphors is a better way of thinking about that, right? Have you ever heard this from a youth pastor or somebody? Like, that the Bible, it's, it's like an owner's manual for life, right? Like, you buy a car, you open up, like, and they give you a manual, and if like, one of the lights goes on on the dashboard, you can open it up to like page 740, and you will find the answer. Anyone ever hear that? Uh, or, or maybe it's been described to you as a, it's like a treasure map, right? And, and so it will guide us precisely and exactly right, to find the gold at the end of the rainbow. I did not win the billion-dollar lotto. Or sometimes it's been described as a rule book for living, Right? Unsure of what the right answer is? Look it up. Whatever it says, is. Now, let's give the benefit of the doubt and just say that those are limited at best. Maybe they're age appropriate. Even then, I'm not so sure. I actually think adolescents are smarter than that. But too many of us, we've held on to these embedded theologies that we grabbed on as children, whether it was in Sunday school or whether we had no religious background, we just kind of picked up somewhere. And so we can develop these ideas, right, these embedded the theological ideas of what this book is that actually has nothing to do with what the book actually is. And so what we're dismissing is not really the book, the library, but some bizarre notion of what it's supposed to be. So, so if it's not an owner's manual and a treasure's map and, and a rule book, how do we think about it? Well, increasingly, here's a couple ways I think about it. I think it's a book that's full of wisdom. Wisdom. When I was a, a younger believer, I thought of the world a little bit black and white. Have you ever been there? <laughs> right and wrong. Sin and not sin. And my general question as a young believer was often, was this sin or not sin? As a closeted gay kid, that was a little bit complicated <laughs> and mildly disconcerting. And by mildly disconcerting, you know, we're talking about like decades of therapy. <laughs> but what I've discovered is that's never how the book was supposed to be used. It's full of wisdom, the kinds of things that help us dis discover the fullness of life, the goodness of life. 
Uh, another way I begin to think about it is, is, is that it's both a window and a mirror, depending on what I need. In one sense, it's a window, right? I can, it's a lens that I can look at the world through. Like, our world is totally insane. I was going to say something else. So I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that here. <laughs> right? It's totally crazy. Right? And trying to make right or wrong, up and down, figure out what's going on. Right? I don't know about you. I can't watch the news anymore. It's just, it's infuriating. And it's terrifying. And it's confusing. And yet this book helps me develop a frame for understanding brokenness and trauma and injustice and people's pain and my own hurt and pain and what reconciliation with, with my fellow neighbor looks like and with my creator and what justice lived out with hands and feet look like. So it's a window for a worldview that allows me to, to begin to make sense again of the senseless. And it's filled of wisdom of the ages written by the sages. And it's a mirror. Sometimes in more progressive circles, I think we forget this one. We don't want it to reflect back at us and show us our own shortcomings. Because we've been told so many times over and over and over, this is how you fail, this is how you're wrong, this is how, right? And so I resist that. But, you know, the truth be told, the longer I follow Jesus, the more I realize how foundationally broken and traumatized I am and how that impacts how I interact with the world. Look, I'm a good gay Jewish liberal kid from Fairfield County, Connecticut. Grew up speaking, talking a good game. Now I live in Hartford, which we like to call Brooklyn of the North. I know that you think of Hartford that way. I have a brother and sister who live in Brooklyn. They give me a hard time about my life in Hartford. But I need that mirror, don't I? As I pursue what it means to be an anti-racist and an ally in my own life, I really need that mirror. Right? Because I think I've got it all right <laughs> if I'm not willing to introspect and look and listen and, and this book is a mirror that I desperately need and I, mostly I've discovered it's, a, it's stories right it, it, it's the, ultimately a human story right it's the story of how human beings over time have tried to discover meaning and purpose in their lives and have interacted and sought after and ran from and embraced and resisted the divine. Sometimes all at the same time. And those kinds of stories are timeless. People ask, is the Bible true? Yeah, in the same way that the great stories are true. Uh, is the Bible authoritative? Absolutely, in the same way that the great stories and narratives and biographies and lessons learned Right, from our fellow siblings and neighbors have authority. Because we can live and we can learn from people's experiences, yes? 
This is a book of people's lived experiences as they've interacted and sought after purpose and meaning. And the divine. And I don't know about you, but in our day, with so much uncertainty, there's something powerful for me about tapping into that timeless narrative. And not only is it a story, but it, it can be our story. Right? And it's a story that's still being written for us. And it can kind of inform that story. And I'll tell you, 30 years in, I've discovered that it, the story is a comedy more than a tragedy. Any English majors, you know the difference. Right? The only real difference between the comedy and the tragedy, right, is the comedy ends well. The tragedy doesn't. Doesn't mean there isn't conflict. Doesn't mean there isn't tension. Doesn't mean that there is not great loss along the way. In fact, the conflict and tension is actually what makes a story interesting. Right? The more conflict and tension in your life, the better story that you're living. Amen? Don't run from those things. Who wants to read a story or watch a TV show where nothing happens? Well, I guess there's Seinfeld. And I, th I think the ancients better understood what this book was really about than we do. Here's, here's what they knew. First of all, it was almost always read, and that's, that's not the right word, it, uh, proclaimed in community. Right? It was mostly passed on orally. Right? It was proclaimed aloud. Now, sometimes people would meditate on it and think about it alone, but mostly it happened in community. And it was so important to the life of the community that they would literally blow a ram's horn, a shofar, to gather the community together whenever it was going to be read publicly. This was like a call to the neighborhood to come together. Old and young, all genders, everyone, visitors, and even those from afar. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. One of the most famous passages in the Jewish Bible. Hear, O Israel. Hear, people of God. The Lord our God is the Lord one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This was a prayer that, that, that Jesus and, and every young Jewish person would have prayed three times a day. It's called the Shema. I remember when I was getting ready for my bar mitzvah, my grandmother, the one piece of advice was, make sure you belt the Shema. She didn't care about anything else. You've probably heard it. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Then it goes on. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk, walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Uh, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Right? Do you see what, what they're saying? Mark yourself with these words. Talk about them with each other. Talk about them. Tell these stories to your children. 
when you walk with friends, wherever you are, when you sit in a cafe and you drink, talk about these words because they give life. These stories matter. They took this stuff seriously. The ancient rabbis used to say that we should literally chew on the scriptures. We should ruminate on them. Right? The rabbis would teach their students that the scriptures should be like honey to our lips. Sweet and complex and, and something that we crave that brings joy. I mean, who doesn't love like a fresh hot waffle with melted butter and local honey drizzled on top? I think I'm ready for brunch. A little. But seriously, the Apostle John, he picks up on this image in the book of Revelation where, where he literally eats the scroll with the living word on it. I love that image. We don't just read the word and reflect on it. We, we chew on it. We consume it. We, we wrestle with it. We allow for and celebrate the tension within it. We live in the mystery and the beauty. We allow room for doubts and, and unanswered questions and complicated, nuanced answers. We know it's a story, it's a drama, it's, a, it, it's our story. So I want to challenge you. Maybe you haven't spent a lot of time in God's Word, or maybe it's been a while since you've done it. I want you to chew on some scripture. And just to give you a very quick example of how to do this in a practical way. And share with you just a passage that I chew on a lot lately. So it's a passage about dealing with anxiety. Any of you ever feel anxious? Do you know anyone who suffers from severe anxiety? Yeah? I think you're being shy now because in our world, right? And my experience has been that just about everybody is experiencing levels of anxiety that are like off the charts and through the roof, right? We've gone through a collective, uh, right, collective community trauma over the last two plus years. And some of us have dealt with it better than others, but all of us have experienced it, and it does create a level of anxiety that is very real. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace, the shalom of God, which transcends all understanding, in other words, it's kind of irrational or mysterious, will guard your hearts and your minds. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, now if I were to go back to the idea where this was like a rule book or like a guide, like, I'd be like, okay, if you're feeling anxious, stop it. That's what the Bible says. The problem, of course, is A, that's not exactly what the text says, and B, that's not helpful, right? And then, uh, if anything, you're going to increase your anxiety levels. But if you read it in context, that's actually not what Paul's saying. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in this very situation, by prayer and petition, thanksgiving, present your request to God. In other words, what is prayer? Prayer is to simply have a conversation with the divine. So when I'm feeling my levels of anxiety go up, right? And anxiety is about fear of what's ahead of me, right? Fear of the future. It's kind of the opposite emotion, and yet they're so tied up with, like, depression, right? Depression is like, like I'm worried about what happened behind me. Anxiety is about fear of what's coming before me, neither of which I have any control over, right? 
And then when those two come together, it's like a deadly little combination. And so I, I go to God in prayer and I'll say, All right, so I'm feeling this anxiety right now over this situation at work or with my family or in a relationship. And I start to talk it out with God. And I say, what, what is it that I'm really feeling? What's making me anxious? What's this fear? What's the root? What's the emotion that I'm feeling? And I think, oh, you know what? This is, this is actually about kind of my fear of failure. And it probably goes back to sixth grade when I brought home my report card. And they were all pretty good except for one C minus in math. And I was yelled at and grounded and, you know, told what an underachiever I was. And it doesn't seem like a big deal. But in sixth grade at that moment when you're like really kind of like that can be traumatic. So parents don't do that. And so I chew on that a little bit and see where is this fear of failure coming from? And it also has to do with my ego, doesn't it? And my fear of what you might think of me. But then I have to realize as I'm talking out to God that you're not really thinking that much about me. Uh, I'm thinking more about me than you are, which is fine. I mean, you don't really care that much. So, like, why am I all stressed out about it? And as I work through and I chew on it with Thanksgiving, and God, you've made me, you've made me sacred and you've called me your child and you got my back. And you, say, and you say that I'm worthy and that I matter and that I'm loved. And if that's the truth, if that's the window, if, if, if that's what I see in the mirror now, right, the, the window in the mirror, all of a sudden my, my anxiety, it might not go away entirely, but it subsides and I, and I, and I can understand it. Thanks, God, and Thanksgiving. Thank you for what you're, you're doing and how you're leading me and that we can have this conversation and and all of a sudden, this peace, this shalom, right, this wholeness, right, the word peace, it comes from the root Hebrew shalom, which actually comes from the idea in, uh, uh, of wholeness, integrity, integer, right? It makes us whole. And so what's not whole about me? If I lack peace, if I have anxiety, what's not whole? What's broken? What's missing? And it turns out it has a lot to do with all these other things that really doesn't have to do with that situation at work or in that relationship. And so now I have context and I have perspective and and that context and perspective guards my heart and my mind and you want to tell me that scriptures are relevant to my life and i just chew on that right i chew on it many of us are experiencing grief serious grief paul says we grieve but not like those without hope chew on that chew on that with your grief so we, just imagine with me. Imagine all of us here as a community if we began to chew on this book on a regular basis. That we would talk about it together as we walk and as we go and we'd have reminders of it on a regular basis. That we would seek wisdom and how we enter the story and use it as both a window and a mirror. How might your life be different? Really, how might your life be different? How might our community be different? I mean, what would happen if we really allowed God's word to form us in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our very beings? Hear, O people of God. Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Elohenu, Adonai, Echad, the Lord, your God, is one God. She's with you. She loves you. And by grace, we're learning to love 
them back. Hero God, hero people of God. Chew on this word. For 30 years, it's been changing my life. It's alive, it's active, it's available to us. And I don't know about you, I'm in desperate need of wisdom. I'm in desperate need of a better window sometimes and a mirror. And I'm still writing my story. And I want to write a better story. How about you? That's all I got. <laughs> but if you came through the north, I hope you're leaving differently. I don't know what doors there are here, but it's a metaphor, right? <laughs> if you're at home, metaphor, you came into your living room, go out the dining room, I don't know. But my prayer is, my deepest prayer is that you'll leave here having encountered God, embracing change, and ready to chew on the word. Amen? Amen. May I pray for us? Uh, Jesus, Spirit, Holy Parent, thank you for the gift of wisdom and of story and of narrative and of history and of people who've gone before us and lived out some of the same things that we struggle with. Thank you that you want to meet us in the realities of our lives, whether it's anxiety or grief or stress or unsuredness or lack of purpose or fear or depression or and joy and all those emotions, all of it. And may we become a people who are willing to ask tough questions, live in the mystery, and truly chew on your word. And everyone said, amen. Thanks. Good to be here with you. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.